You're listening to the Retro Guardians. Okay, now what? Buckle up. Have you ever bought or rented a videotape that wasn't quite right? <laughs> Groovy. Little Hand says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. Hasta la vista, baby. Retro Guardians. Hi, welcome to this week's Retro Guardians. I'm Ben. I'm Jay. And we thought we'd talk about the most famous spy of all time. Uh, can only be one. Bond. James Bond. 007. Licensed to kill. Mm. And there's a special... We're at a special time, aren't we, with Bond? It's reached a special milestone in, uh, the, in its time frame. 60 years? Is it? You're telling me. I don't know. Uh, what year was it started? 1961. 62. 62, Dr. No. Yeah. So, yeah, 60 years. Wow. Where did that go? Older than me. Older than us. Not many people can say that these days. Uh, Touche, touche. So, how did it start? Tell us a bit about Mr. Bond and the the series. What are we going to talk about? Because it's it's actually a huge franchise that spans many years and still decades. So, I think for the time being, Jay, we will stick to the 60s and early, very early 70s because... We'll stick to the Connery era and the uh, George Lazenby yeah, period. That's some of the best ones. Yes, it is. But I also will go into the sort of cultural significance of Bond too of that period. There, there was this massive explosion in the 60s with spies. Mm. There really was. And you just have to look at television to see that. I mean, whatever works, that's what producers go. We want that. Yeah. So in the late 50s, Harry Saltzman, who was then a, f- a struggling producer, bought the rights to Bond, I think in 1958, in that period. Now, Albert R. Cubby Broccoli had been a very successful producer, American producer, but he'd been doing a lot of productions in England. Mm. Since, I think, 1950, he'd gotten a big start in the industry in the 40s and early 50s and then moved to England for production values and stuff Mm. and done a lot of movies, like action-based movies and that. Um, And also he'd done uh, tropical location movies and stuff like that. But he had done a flop in 1959 or 60 uh, doing a film about, I think it was the trial of Oscar Wilde, and it flopped because of the gay subject matter of it. Yeah. And he really wanted to make a movie adaption of the Arabian Nights at that time period. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the writer he talked to at the time said to him, it wasn't working, and he said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I'd love to do a series of films based on James Bond. But I don't know who the... And he's, I can't remember the name of the writer at the time, but he, he knew it was Harry Saltzman. He said, no, you want to talk to Harry Saltzman. So Bond was a book, was it? Yeah, it was a series of books. At this point in time, Ian Fleming was still alive. Mm. And um, the reason Fleming did the books the way he did, he lived in England, right? Yeah. He bought a little tro- house down in Jamaica, which was nicknamed, by the way, Goldeneye. little inside knowledge there for folks that didn't know. And he used to go down there for the three months of winter... In England, because it was cold and wet and freezing. So he would go to tropical environment for three months and he'd write the novels there. Mm. Did this for years. And so Cubby Broccoli talked to Harry about buying them. He said, no, what I really want to do is become a partner with you. I've seen your films. I know what you can do. Let's do it together. And he said, all right. Mm. So on the basis of that, Eon Productions was formed. So were some of the subsidiary... Yep. Parts. Sub- subsidiary companies. Thank yep. you, yes. 
and um, they immediately went into looking at which ones they could do. Now, at the time, they had a deal with United Artists, mm -hmm. and they were able to get a deal. I think it was just for a three or four picture deal at that point in time. So they both agreed that Dr. No would be the first one to start with. Now, they looked at a lot of people. Now, they originally did want Roger Moore in this time period. They even talked to Cary Grant at one point about mm. doing it as well. Um, I can't remember why Cary turned them down, but I do know Roger was working at the time and couldn't get out of a contract. So someone recommended, look at this film, Derby and the Little People or something like that. And I think it had only made been two years earlier than Dr. No. Yeah. And that was the introduction to Sean Connery, who at the time was only famous for really being an ex-bodybuilder, a Scottish bodybuilder, by the way. So they had a look at him. They agreed on Terence Young as the director. I think Terence had done a couple of films with Cubby Broccoli at that point. And they went full steam into filming Dr. No. So they both they all agreed they wanted a tropical environment location for, because the book is set in that. And then the other thing that helped with this movie was at the time, um, maybe even being a year earlier, some famous magazine at the time asked JFK what his favourite books were of all time. There was 10 books. And one of them happened to be From Russia With Love which became the second film of, of the Bond films. Yeah, okay. And that's where the zeitgeist major culture, because he was a very big man at the time, on a, on a major level said, you know, I'll read this. So I reckon every ten, one of those ten books would have got read, because yeah. so, someone read, oh, he likes those, I want to read those. And were the movies close to the, um, to the books? Some of it was, some of it wasn't. Hmm. There were times they had to change things. I can't remember why, but for some reason it was location or they couldn't film there or something like that. Now, the thing I will point out very quickly, they made the first four almost back-to-back, -back, no break, a year every year for the first couple of years. So Dr. No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, and I think Thunderball were very close together. If I'm not mistaken, You Only Live Twice, I think, was two years after that, and then Honor Majesty was 1969, so another two or three years, and then Diamonds was two years later as well. But the earlier period, the first four, yeah, it was back to back. And I reckon they literally had no, no sleep, no lives, no nothing. It was just get these films made. So the other thing that Bond did that no one else did, and there's a reason we can now say there's music videos that exist, was the title sequences. Yes, of course. They were huge. Now, that really didn't take off until Goldfinger, Shirley Bassey's famous number and the music video that went with that. Um, Dr. No and Fr From Russia were very basic, but it was still, it was, they really did innovating with the title sequences created by the great Maurice Bender. Mm. Maurice is, that's what he's most famous to this day about. Yep. Uh, they had done a film just before that based on an old coward. It was one of Stanley Kramer's movies. I can't think of the title off the top of my head, but they used babies in the title sequence on lawns. And each time, like it got to the director of photography or the music person, it was like a little baby playing the um, with the, a mini piano. So they used titles really well, and that impressed Cubby to go, that's the guy we need to do this. Mm. And Maurice actually designed the famous intro for Bond. Yes, now the, this, uh, the gun barrel. Yes. Yep. Now, this is the sad part. He was given the option. Did he want to get paid for it uh -oh. or own a piece of it? Uh-oh. He chose to get paid for it, and yep. it was the biggest regret for the rest of his life. I bet. But no one thought it was going to turn into what it turned into. The earlier days also featured Bond with a hat on. 
Oh, okay. So if you go back and look at uh, even up until Lazenby's one, mm. he was still wearing a hat mm. in those days. When we get into the early seventies, that's when the hat sort of dropped. Mm. So I thought yeah, that was something definitely added to it. So just a quick other thing: several spin-offs that came out of this were definitely shows like I Spy and The Man from Uncle. They were becoming very popular in in mm. the major pop culture era of the sixties in America, especially, and that spanned out into England and that too. Yeah, you had shows like The Baron, you had The Avengers, not The Avengers that all the kids know now, the English version with Patrick Manning. Yeah, and it was a big, big impact on the culture. And I mean, really, you can't say anyone's that lasted this long that still has a cultural impact on that major level. No, no. So, Thunderball was the fourth film, and I think Thunderball was the only one at the time of that period, and maybe of the later ones too, that actually won an Oscar for special effects. It actually won an Oscar right. for that. So, Johnny Steers, who did a lot of the, the 60s and 70s Bonds specifically, yeah, mm. and I mean, um, he, he got it for that, and I, I still remember a couple of sequences. But why I remember Thunderball is the, is the music title sequence that was sung by Tom Jones. Tom oh, was just okay. starting as well, yeah. and it boom, it did a lot for They had some big names. They always do. Their title sequences are always, you know, big names, whoever's current in the industry or... So that's another you know. time capsule thing yeah. about Bond. So You Only Live Twice was Nancy Sinatra. Yes, I remember that one. And I think at that time period, it was only really... On a Majesty's Secret Service that didn't have a song. It had music, but it didn't have a song. No, it didn't song. have a song. It had the song at the end, which is We Got All the Time in the World. That was oh, the last thing. Oh, that I don't Lu- remember. Okay. That was Louis Armstrong. He sung that, and I think it was one of his last jobs before uh, he died. I think that's actually the one DVD that's missing out of my Bond collection. Well, we better go look well, for it, should one we? That I lost. Yeah, well, we'll get it on the to do list. Yep. So. Bond has always been current of what period it was made in. So in the 60s, it was still the early days of the Cold War. Mm. So that had a big influence on on it as well. Yep. Now, one thing I don't know a lot of people know, and I'm not sure you're the same as well, but Blofeld was essentially there from the start. Yes, he was. He, yep. Well, we never saw him. We saw the cat mm. and we and saw the hands. Yes. And... Um, the same can be said of Spectre. Spectre has been around since the beginning. Mm. And it was only up until, I think, yeah, the Blofelts, which was sort of uh, Honor Majesty and Diamonds. Yep. He's the only character in all the, in all the Bond films to be po- played by multiple actors mm. more than once. And in the case of recently with Christoph Waltz, he's the only person to play him more than once. Everyone yep. else has been multiple different actors. Yep, yep. So that's another little significant thing about that. But... Like I said, when something's working and immediately it's like, oh, okay, that works, we have to do something. Mm. This can also be said about Marvel Comics in the mid-60s. Stanley and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were on a very big creative high that period of time. Well, this works, let's do it in comics. Mm. So the creation of S.H.I.E.L.D. were created as a result of Bond, as was Hydra, which is based on Spectre. So that's where the basis for that comes from. Yeah. And when we're just talking about Bonds, and I think this the main Bond we're talking about in this series is going to be Connery. It was interesting that he was replaced by Lazenby, who was the first non-Connery Bond, and then we had a reappearance of Connery again. It didn't. It didn't. Diamonds. Her Majesty didn't make the kind of money yeah. it should have, and also they were trying to get George to sign a contract to multiple Bonds. He wouldn't sign. 
Mm. His agent at the time told him to hold out. He later said he regretted it. Yeah. And they fired him as a result of that, Mm. all those things. They wanted Sean back so badly, Jay, they paid him at the time $2 million to get him back. Yeah, wow. You know what he did with it? No. He formed a trust in Scotland for Scottish actors. He took that money and put it straight into a trust. Wow. And it was there for a long time. Mm. And he's now the last. last, uh, That was the last time he played Bond. Yeah, but they... uh, Sorry, United Artists signed him to a free picture deal. That was the first. And then he did The Offence with Sidney Lament. And then he never made a third movie with them, but they didn't care. They wanted him back and they got him back. After Diamonds is when Sean Connery came with the classic moustache, which we know him for in his later years. That's when he started growing that. So that's where that began. But at the early days of Bond, I mean, he, he was struggling. I mean, he was in The Longest Day, which was made in 1962 at the time. It was the biggest World War II reenactment film ever. And it was filled like a who's who of famous actors at the time, more than 50. And he was in that, in the Scottish regiment scenes. So, I mean, that's like, I need a job, I'll take it kind of situation. And then he's doing Bond a year later. Mm. Hitchcock also jumped on the wagon too, with Connery being popular and grabbed him and shoved him into Marnie, which was his second film with Tippi Hedren. Uh, for all those out there, that's Dakota Johnson's grandmother. And they did that because the success of Bond made people go watch that film as a mm. result of it. Like anyone else now, they oh, he's good in that, let's put him in this, and they all come over and watch this one. Yep, that's right. And that's just producers and directors thinking ahead of the curve and thinking about profit more than anything. Money, money, money. On every level. Bond was the first to do gadgets on a big level. Yes. And that's one of the main things that I think will come to mind for most people is is the quartermaster and showing Bond all the different gadgets. The quartermaster in the first movie, Dr. No, was played by a different actor than um, Desmond Llewellyn. Desmond would take the role over in the following film from Russia with Love, and he would continue that all the way up to You Only Live Twice. Sorry, The World Is Not Enough in 1999. He sadly died in a car accident shortly before its release. He was, 80, he was in his mid-80s, by the way. He is the only actor to be in so many of them. And there's only one, Jay, I can tell you he was not in, and that was uh, Live and Let Die. He's mentioned, but we don't see him in that movie. I don't know why. Um, One thing about him I'll get into on another time. The longest he was ever in a Bond was actually in Licence to Kill. He was in more than half the movie. And I was really grateful for that one because he actually got to play a lot more that movie. Yeah, he sort of went out in the field more, didn't he? Yeah, Yeah, he was actually in more than half the film, at least. But the other films, it's mainly one sequence or maybe two. But what's really interesting is the first two films were directed by... Um, Terence Young and Terence also directed Thunderball which is the fourth they got uh, Guy Hamilton in to direct uh, Goldfinger now the thing that Guy brought to it that was there all the way up to near the end was Desmond wanted to play it like he respected Bond and that he should and he goes no 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 you don't like him why not because he doesn't respect your gadgets that's where that little bit of tension came from that was there all the way up to even um, Pierce's run there's a little bit of tension there, which works, to be honest. If it's, they all get along, it, it don't work all the time. It has to be a bit of friction. So that's one thing I do remember that came out of Guy. Guy Hamilton, like Terence Young, had done a lot of films in the early 50s, and he'd actually been a very successful um, uh, direct, uh, assistant director for a lot of big people, including Charlie Chaplin, Robert Aldridge, uh, Carol Reed, a few of the old school guys that I still know to this day. And he'd done a couple of little films in the early, mid-50s. I, I just can't figure them off the top of my head. Devil's Brigade or something was one called that, I think, was one of them. Mm. 
And he was, until John Glenn, the, the, the most reused director. I mean, he did uh, Goldfinger, then he got completely burnt out, and then came back in the early 70s and did Live and Let Die. Uh, sorry, Diamonds, Live and Let Die, Man with a Golden Gun, which is four. And I, they're four of my absolute favourites. So, I mean, there were the, 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 both Harry and Cubby tended to like to use the same people as much as possible. So one thing I will also go into, the first Bond, Dr. No, was edited by an man named Peter Hunt. Peter would go on to edit Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger and Thunderball. But by Thunderball, he was getting a bit bored and he asked them, could I work on a different angle? Well, when they were in Japan looking for locations to film You Only Live Twice, he was already there on holidays. So they grabbed him and gave him a promotion, said, you're the second unit director. Wow. And it worked out really well. Uh you Only Live was actually directed by Lewis Gilbert. Lewis had done Alfie with um, Michael Caine at the time, which is a big hit. I think this is his follow-up to Alfie. And I think he only died not too long ago, Joe. I think he was 98. He mm. actually lived in a in his late hundreds. Wow. Which is pretty impressive. Yeah, so I always remember the Japanese motif with the intros for title sequence for You Only Live Twice. Yeah, I don't remember that one. Yeah, it had a very sort of nice melody to it. Mm. But typical Maurice Bender fashion, he had no ideas whatsoever. So he turned up with an empty uh, notebook and walked in to all the boys and said, all right, boys, we're going to come up with a title sequence and we've only got a certain small amount of time to do it. Mm -hmm. He was reputed to be very late always with the titles because mm -hmm. he felt that he didn't want someone to come in and change them. He always felt the studio would do that. And I'm just reading that the, the screenplay for You Only Live Twice was actually written by Roald Dahl. Yeah, role. They really wanted something different. They had used Rich, Richard Maybaum for the earlier ones. Mm. Richard would actually work on all of them up until Licence to Kill, which is late eighties. Mm. He was one of my favourite childhood authors. Our favourite childhood mm. authors. Also, what made that film unique too was the sets were getting bigger. Mm. Now, the original Doctor No Jay was only made for just under eight hundred thousand dollars. And the sets were done by Ken Adams, and that's what also got established because of that movie. Ken Adams became a very well-known set designer. He would go on to work with Kubrick a lot afterwards, and very well-known established, and he would also come back majorly in the 70s. Well, they wanted Ken again to do You Only Live Twice. Now, in the, in the script for that, in the book, I think it, 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 the Spectre's lair was a, was a different kind of lair, and they were doing. They couldn't find a castle to fit the description of the book when they went all over Japan. Well, they flew over the top of a, one of the inactive volcanoes, and the first thing they said is, well, what if we made the base inside a volcano? Oh, yeah. That's where that came from. So when they got back to England, they talked to Ken. Ken did a model, did everything, and, he, and Cabby said to him without blinking, how much do you think you'd do this for? And he said, a million dollars. And he said, Ken, Cubby didn't blink, and he said, well, if you can do it for that, do it. That whole set cost more than the first movie to make. Wow. Now, I heard stories about they did not have a set to put it inside of. So they built it on the outskirts of Pinewood. Mm. There was so much scaffolding all over the place oh, yeah. that it was very famous that people, when they were working at Pinewood, when they go out on their lunch breaks, all go outside and watch the set being done. <laughs> but then someone said out loud, well, you've sort of shot yourself in the foot. And they go, what? Said, How are you going to light the place? Mm. The whole set? Yeah. I think it was Freddie Jones. Freddie was a very famous DP, was a director at some point as well, said, I can light it. It turns out he used every single generator he could find at Pinewood to light the whole set. Yeah. And that's as a result. Uh, 
And it's still one of the most memorable sets of those earlier Bonds. I think even you remember that set, Jay. Oh, yeah. So the whole stunt sequence when they come in for the roof on the wall, on the on the on the ropes and all that I, that still blows me away now. Oh yeah. So Blofeld had been established in Doctor No, and we'd seen him in the next two. I don't think we see him in Goldfinger. I think Goldfinger we actually didn't see him. We might allure to him, mm. but we didn't see him because sort of Goldfinger was more the your eyes were on him more than anything for that movie. Yeah, yeah. Now the thing that Goldfinger did, and I think it was. This became another trend with Bond, were the very famous henchmen. With Dr. No, and um, definitely from Much I Would Love, from Much I Would Love, you had uh, Robert Shaw's character, I think it was Rembrandt, if I'm not, not mistakenly off top. And um, with, with um, uh, Goldfinger, we were introduced to Odd Job. Yeah. And Objob became a very iconic sort of idea. And also the use of weapons. They all became like with a trademark weapon after that. Yeah. So with Objob, it was the hat, which was a unique weapon. They all had their own. And what, who was the one with the laser? Where was the laser? Oh, I remember when Bond was tied to the table. It was Goldfinger. Goldfinger, yeah. yeah. Ulrich von Goldfinger. Yeah, played by uh, Kurt Grober. Mm. And Kurt, this is another little funny thing. Kurt had played, I think, a child molester or something in a movie, and, the, and Cubby and Harriet saw it and said, well, we want him. They rang his agent. Can he speak English? Yeah, he speaks perfect English, blah, blah, blah. Turns up on the first day of the shoot. Mm. Hello, I am very happy to be here. Uh-oh. Couldn't speak a single word of English. Uh-oh. And they're, they're, Cubby and Harry are frantic, and, and, and guys cool as a cucumber go, don't worry, boys, I've got this. Mm. He instructed him to talk fast, and they redubbed it. That was the only way they could do it. and um, But he became one of the most famous ones of that period. I mean, that's mm. definitely... You do remember Goldfinger. Yes. Yeah, very, very popular villain. So, also, the set in Goldfinger is one I have to point out, which was the inside of Fort Knox at the time. Now, no one had been allowed in Fort Knox. Yeah. So, the draftsman at the time, I think, was Peter Lamont and his brother, who worked under Ken. They were told... Think of the most extravagant thing you can think of. Okay, go with that. We can't go in there. We can go outside and take photos, but we can't go in. Okay. And they got a letter sent to them from the lady at the time that ran Fort Knox saying it was one of the best looking things she'd ever seen. They're very close to what it actually looked like. Yeah, yeah. They were really impressed with that. They filmed that whole sequence with it, Jay, the back lot of um, of um, Pinewood. Yeah, and you probably couldn't do that with the plans and stuff today with all the security implications. Yeah. So Pinewood, for those out there, is one of the biggest, oldest uh, film set um, studios in England. It's been used in multiple movies. Yeah. Uh, as the films went along, they sometimes couldn't use them because as we got into the late 60s, early 80s, more productions were made in England, so they, they had to sort of take whatever they can get. So Leviston and Shepparton sometimes got used to, also famous studios. Leviston came along later, but the more movie productions were on, the, you know, the more chances you've got to book ahead of time to get sets. So during the 60s and 70s, they had a lot of first dibs, so to speak, because of what was going on in the climate, and also they were making money. So it was like, yeah, what ones do you need? Okay, they're all yours, go. And that sort of changed as they got into the 80s. Mm. Now, the other thing too, and we have to point out that the... the, the Politically incorrectness of the time period oh, was yeah. certain names. Yeah. The most obvious 
which is in Goldfinger, is Pussy Galore, <laughs> played by Honor Blackman. Yep. You could not get away with that now. No way. You'd be crucified. And even just the jokes, the um, you know, the sexually inappropriate jokes. The Double Bond. entendres, all that. Yeah, Bond always is pulling jokes. You know, you can't do that today with our political correct society. People would get upset. So that's another sort of statement of that period of time. Mm. Um. They also spend a lot of time on getting the girls right, too. I know that yep. for a fact. Um, Ursula Andrus, who was in the original, which was in um, Dr. Yep. No, she was one of the... That image of her coming out of the oh. water with the knife on it. Yeah, that's belt. just still... Um, every now. Every... Oh, it's amazing. And I think a lot of influencers on Instagram and that still try and uh, imitate it and, you know... Um, yeah. Classic. Oh, Absolutely. I'm just trying to remember who the... I think it was... Just one moment. I'm trying to remember who was in from Russia. Okay, just one second. Which was in 1963. It was the following year to that one. And it was... Just a sec, folks. Oh, no, no, no. Um... I'm just looking at the budgets here at the moment, folks. So the first movie cost $1 million to make. The second one cost $2 million. And it, it box office was nearly $80 million. That's impressive uh, for a follow-up film. Mm. What year was that? 62? 63. 63, yeah. So hang on. So you had 62, Dr. No, 63 from Russia with Love. 64, Thunderball. And that means 65 for You Only Live Twice. And then I think it was yeah three years before they did Honor Majesties. Yeah. So there was a bit of a gap with the last one. I do know that. Was that gap between them um, uh, with Her Majesty's service, was that a reason why Connery perhaps was not available after the long wait since his last movie? No, oh, it could have been. Mm. Okay. Don't worry about the name. Uh, Daniel, that's it. Uh, Italian. Daniel Biacci. Am I saying that right? Yeah. She was the first blo one of the second blondes. I always remember they used blondes a lot back then mm. with, with Bond. But yeah, she was in um, from Russia, and Matt Monroe I think did the music for that one. It, it had a very distinct sort of thing at the start. But after Goldfinger, that's when the music really became staples. Yeah. And you had to have, like you said, the time period. You had to have whoever was the big artist at that time period. Yeah, or the upcoming. Yes, that's right. Yes. Because a lot of people made, like you said, Tom Jones and stuff, they've sort of made their mark from Bond. Um, Cubby Broccoli was very good friends with Frank Sinatra. Mm. And it was Cubby and that, and I think John Barry, because John Barry also came in to be a big part of the music, the 60s, early 70s, and even in the 80s. And John made the suggestion for using Nancy Sinatra. Well, that was very easy for them to get Nancy because she knew the Cubby growing up. So she's like, yeah, I can do it for you. Yeah. It has a nice sort of her voice. You only live twice, and it works really well for that one. Yeah. But because the change up with George from Her Majesty, yeah, they John Barry decided to do something different, which was no lead singer. We'll do it at the end, but we'll have a little. He made a suggestion to Harry that we use bits of footage from the other films in the, in the intro title mm -hmm. sequence to let you know it's the same character, it's just different actor. Yeah. So let's also talk about some of the other iconic actors. We mentioned Desmond Llewellyn playing the Quartermaster Q. Yep. Who, uh, Bernard Lee was the first portrayer of M. Yes, M, M, M. Um, 
he and is the, the grandfather of Johnny Lee Miller from one of your favourite movies, Hackers, Joe. Oh, okay. And also Train Spotting. That's his grandfather. Right. He was in quite a few, wasn't he? Yeah. Up until Moonraker. Yeah. So that's nearly 20 years he was mm. there, 11 movies at least, and he was there from the start. And I think with the, the changes of Bond, I think the viewers tended to attach themselves to the character more than the actual actor because we know and we're used to Bond flipping around with different um, uh, actors. But I know some people sort of ask the question, is the change of an actor you know, they keep the 007 designation. Is the change of an actor also signifying that Bond himself has changed in terms of a new, you know, he might have been killed and there's somebody else now playing 007 and has taken his name? With the recent movie, I think that now answers that question Mm. with the theory. But in the old days, we always assumed it was the same person all the way through. Yeah, but now it's put a spin on that. Yes. Also, Bond is relevant to the period it's made in. So there's things in the 80s now that I'm like, no, that you know that no. doesn't make sense. So it is made in the present tense. Yeah. Whatever movie it is, it is the present tense. Yeah, yeah. But when we got into the 90s, it was the first time that um, Bond was portrayed to have been around a lot longer than he was. So the opening sequence was at least five or six or even ten years earlier mm. in the Cold War era, and then it cuts into the 90s. yeah. So that, that was that was they didn't do that in the earlier films. The no, earlier no. films, it was still sticking to post World War Two, more back to back type of uh, chronology. Yeah, and also the kind of villains of that period. A lot of them were ex Nazis and all that that were recruited in- recruited into Spectre and that. Yeah. So we always got a sense that Spectre was this ruthless terrorist organization that ran the world. Yeah. I mean, all the the later ones like Cobra and that and GI Joe, I think, were the ba- like, and also said Hydra. They all based off Spectre. That's what it all originally came from. Yeah. Another character we have to talk about is a certain Miss Moneypenny. Now, the original actress that played Moneypenny was Lewis Maxwell. She actually played Moneypenny up until View to a Kill, which is more than twenty. 20- Two wow, years. That's a big stint. Yeah, her her last couple of movies, you could tell she was getting on, mm. and she stayed on as long as Roger stayed on. Now Roger Moore stated he always felt that she should have been made M. She should have. What happened yeah, later? Would have with, been a good progression. Yeah, when when Judy Davis came on to play M, he she always felt he said it should have been Lewis. She should have been allowed to play M. You know, different times, different places. It's mm. the truth. But she was in the early days. I mean, you knew her. And her famous intro in the, into it as well is sort of still well known. I mean, you've always said you love the door and the offices for both yeah, M yeah, and Money Penny in the original movies too. And I love they brought that back into sort of Daniel Craig's era as well with um, Ray Fiennes' M having that kind of office. And the door, you pointed out the door as soon as you saw it, yeah. which they, the famous M always had. Now, the, what I remember is... There was a lady after her, and I think she only did two. I think I think her name was Caroline Bliss, and she only did the two movies with um, Timothy Dalton, which were Living Daylights and Licence to Kill. I prefer Licence to Kill. I think that was the best one Timothy ever did. But she only played the role for two years, uh, two movies, sorry. Then Samantha Bond, just a coincidence with the last name, she would play Money Penny from Gold Eye to uh, Die Another Day, which was just four films. And then now Naomi Harris has taken over the role. Mm. And Naomi really did not come into playing it until really Skyfall. Um, they didn't have a Money Penny for both 
um, Casino and um, Quantum of Solace, which is unusual. Yeah. Mm. That's the first time though that character has not been in any of the Bond movies, Jay. So what else would you say was another significant thing about Bond coming from the 60s? Technology. So technology that doesn't exist and an insight to the future, perhaps. Keep people wondering, you know, is this what is going to come uh, in years to, to, to come? So I think it was always that step ahead. It was the technology was all um, uh, like a, a dream, you know, like what what could it possibly look like? And that was always portrayed very well. So there's one other thing I have to go into, and I think this guy really deserves a bit of credit. Bond was also one of the first to utilise a regular stunt team. I mean, this goes through all the eras of Bond. I mean, they changed it up every 10 years or so. But the first person that really was the beginning of Bond was a man named Bob Simmons. And Bob did regular movies with uh, Cubby Broccoli as well as Terrence Young. So they both wanted him to be the main stunt organiser and you know choreographer. And Bob is actually the first Bond we see, Jay. He's actually wearing the hat in the um, famous gun barrel scene. That's actually Bob doing that scene. Okay. Bob did many of the films in the 60s, 70s, and I think he even did the very early 80s ones too. And I believe he passed away at the end of the 80s. But I do know there's a sequence in Thunderball where Connery has a fight with, with a... We think it's a woman, but it's actually a man in a woman's disguise. That's actually Bob. Bob's actually playing the general. It's disguised as a woman in that scene. Then it's the famous jetpack scene straightly after that. Yeah. Okay. So Bob is another one of those guys that, yeah, if you mention Bond to me, you've got to mention Bob Simmons. Mm. Um, I do know he doubled Richard Kill in the famous scenes in Spy Who Loved Me. And by the way, Bob is not much taller than me, Jay. He's just under six foot. And yep. Richard Kill was over six six, I think, at the time. Yeah. Someone always said, oh, how are you going to double a bloke that big? And he said, if the action's good, he, he quoted a famous old director named Raoul Walsh. He said, if the action's good and the angles are great, you can have a, a monkey in, in a top hat and a, and, a, and a jacket do it. So he said it's all in, in, in posture and that, and it's the famous scene where he goes head first through the glass. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, that, those moments now when I look back on it going, I'm amazed no one got killed on some of these stunts. And they were very careful back then because stunts and safety, especially back in the 60s and that, were not as straight-laced as it got during the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. So... How would you have, and a lot of the stunts too, so you're saying, like, are they, they were sort of more manual type of high risk stunts instead of special effects. Yes, but also Bob did a lot of the car chase sequences too. Like, yeah. there's a, I think there's one, in, it's Goldfinger or it's Thunderball, and how he's able to do it, he actually took the side off the car, he's actually driving low, looking at the side of the car, not through the windshields because it gets shot or something. Yeah. They were the first to develop those ones. Yeah. But the thing that Bob did, and I've got to mention this quickly, Bob was the first to do the famous stunt, which became a staple of Bond, where the stuntman would do a stunt and then fall behind a, a series of boxes or obscure them, and then Connery or more whoever would come out from behind it and walk off. Mm. He was the first to, to do that. I think it was... Uh, there's a famous one. It's either Thunderball or even You Only Live Twice. That, that, it's obvious that like, you can tell it was a stuntman, then it's, then it's Connery. Yeah, he was the one that invent, invented that, and I remember them still doing that in the early '80s with Roger Moore. I and mean, there's a famous one scene in Octopussy where he's doing the Tarzan bit on the on the on the vines, and he mm. falls behind a thing, and then suddenly comes out, 
getting leeches off himself. Oh, and yeah, I remember. Yeah, so they did that really well. That was stunt work is one thing I do have to mention, and Bond, and they continue that to this day. You look at all even the more, more recent movies, that's one thing you can tell they spend a lot of money and time on is stunts. And I think also the actual story. Um, the story was different um, because there weren't other movies that were sort of doing that same... Serialised kind of storylines. Yeah, and it was the, that... I mean, there were a lot of spy movies, but this one had a different take, didn't it? It was something different about it. It was um, aligned with the British government. You had... Um, you know, all these different mysteries or puzzles he had to solve and bad guys he had to deal with. And then it was movie after movie that carried that same trajectory. Yeah, you know, it investigation, was, detective yeah. kind of yeah. angle as well. Yeah. And there's a big debate about that was specifically one of the films, which is the run the Roger Moore ones, which mm. is for your eyes only. They stripped out most yeah. of the gadgets out of that one and just had Doesn't him... work. No, no, it did work. It mm. actually just went back to basics and it actually mm. worked because they had made Moonraker before it. Oh, Moonraker. And they overspent yeah. on that movie and they said, you can't do that again. That was one where they sort of went too hard Star Wars. with the effects. Star and, yeah. Wars. Was like you say, what, what is the topic of the month? Yeah. When they did Moonraker, it was Star Wars. Yeah, so that was the one they went, you can do one, but you can't spend that kind of budget again. And they did For Your Eyes Only, which to this day is voted one of the best ones. Yeah, okay. So I think it was sometimes you've got to go back and reinvent yourself and, and go back to basics, and that pulled that off. I did get the pleasure of talking to one of the, the actual villain of that film, uh, Julian Glover, for most people out there, he played Pycelle in um, Game of Thrones, and um, he was also at General Veers in um, Empire Strikes Back. And he told me the reason he did it was no gadgets. He, they said, we're going back to a basics approach, and there was no gadgets, there'd be just... A couple of scenes, but it wasn't the whole film of it. And he goes, yeah, I'll do that one. No, And that's why he picked that one straight away. Mm. So occasionally they, they do get something right. I mean, there's yeah. some things now you look at that and go, oh, God, they're off the mark with that. Yeah. So the 60s really established Bond as we know him. I mean, the, that continued, like you said, into the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. But the basis of what Bond is in, is in that original era of movies. Mm. Uh, very famous, um, you know... Uh, female actress being opposite for per film, which was always the big thing at the time too. Well-established, uh, unique titles. That was the other thing, Jay, titles. Each yeah. film had a unique title. I don't think they changed most of the original book names. I think they kept most of them. Yeah, I think they did, yeah. Um, as we got up until after license, they weren't really based on the books as much anymore, but they would go back and look at the short stories of the books and go, hang on, that has an interesting thing we couldn't do back in the day. Let's base the next film around that idea. And that's where a lot of those came from, especially the the uh, Pierce Brosnan movies. Yeah. So Goldeneye as itself, the idea of the, the the weapon and all that, that came from another book or something. Mm. Models were another big thing, especially... Yes, huge in the movie, weren't they? Yes. And, Eye candy. Yes, and... I don't remember the, the, who did them in the early 60s, but I know Derek Meads took over in the 70s, and Derek did them all the way up into the mid-90s, and Derek worked on Superman and Batman, by the way. He did all the model stuff in those films. Mm -hmm. And Derek was another one. He was he was famous for the famous tanker for Spy Who Loved Me. I mean, he, he they were really going to use a real tanker, but they had to use an empty one. But the problem is they were told an empty tank is more dangerous than a full one because it's full of gas. So someone has a, as one of the guys says, has a puff on their cigar. <laughs> Kaboom, you know. So yeah. they came out of a meeting and Lewis Gilbert, who also directed that one, 
said to Derek, all right, Derek, it's going to be all models. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the model work on some of those films, even now, I still reckon is some of the top of that period as well. Now, location work was another big thing. Bond was the first global film series. Yeah. They really went to a lot all of location. I don't think they've ever been here, Jay. It's the only place... No, no Australian Bond. We need an Outback version. Yeah. They haven't done it out here yet. Mm. But in those days, they didn't want to be in England as much as they could help it. All the set work was done in England and at Pinewood. But all the location stuff, yeah, they really went above and beyond. And they were the first to really showcase the world in places like Italy and that as well. That some places... In, uh, I don't think they did much in France. They did a little bit. But any time bomb comes a calling, all those cities and towns and, and countries are like, yes, yes, you can do it. Yeah. So I think it's only a matter of time before it does end up here. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's lots of different geography too, similar to when we spoke the other week about Carmen San Diego. Um, one of the big things with Bond is that it yeah, encapsulates the world and um, the viewers can see all the different parts of the world and the geography and... There's some really nice scenes too, you know, like uh, even the new Bonds, the new Bonds, um, with all their different um, continents that he touches on. Um, I, th I think it's one of the best parts of Bond. For some people like ourselves who haven't been able to travel too far, it's a great way to see and hear about the world. Yeah. The earlier Bonds, I definitely stand by that because they did shoot Dr. No in Jamaica. A lot of the sequences, especially on the beach and stuff, and that was Jamaica. Yeah. So they really, because I mean, I think Fleming was still alive at the time. He he actually recommended Jamaica for those sequences. And recently, with the last Daniel Craig one, they actually shot a big chunk of that in Jamaica as well. Yeah. So I mean, they really do utilize the descriptions that he has in the books about places, and oh, well, we can't shoot there, but this will work just as well, and it has the same vibe. I mean, sometimes they couldn't afford to, and it was just easy if it was one scene to do it on the back lot set. So there's a sequence in Octopussy when he's, the famous scene when he's been chased on the um, the bikes. You remember the, the, the tourist ones? Oh, yeah, yeah. The scene when he gets off the bike, runs through the crowd, and then gets on the bike on the other side. The whole middle part's actually a set in England. Oh, really? They, they did it as a reshoot. They're like, this doesn't work. Let's do a bit in the middle. Yeah. And it worked. Once they did that, it just worked. So, I mean, now you and I can go back and go, well, that's a set, that's that's a location, yeah. that's this and that. But as a kid, you didn't care. You were just no, happy no. to see that. Yeah. And I still, to this day, get excited when a new Bond comes out. Like, it's that same, it doesn't die. That excitement, that interest doesn't die. And it's the same over and over, every time. And I think that's, you know, fantastic with this franchise. So if I seem to remember correctly, you and I have seen every Bond together since uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Okay. I didn't yeah. see Goldeneye with you. I saw that with my uncle on the Gold Coast. Yeah. yeah. But ever since then, and by the way, folks, the mid-90s, that period, that's when me and Jay started watching these films. And your mother walked in on us watching them one day and goes, oh, Bond, yeah, I used to watch these when I was young too. Yeah, yeah. So I remember all that very distinctively. My father did too. And he's like, all right, I want to see this new guy, Ben, put him on. And he's yeah, like, we went back and saw the old Bonds from there. Yeah. And and I had a bit of a, uh, you know, craze where I'd buy the, the box set and all that sort of stuff. So did I. Yeah. Um, I have most of them behind me. And um, like Jay, I'm going to try and help him find the one he's missing. Hmm. But... Um, I definitely think it's the longest-running franchise in the history of film, when you think about it. Cons consistently, I mean. Yeah. There's not a lot... I mean, the longest gaps have been four or five years for a couple of them. Maybe, I think, six between Licence and Goldeneye. But there was a lawsuit in the middle there. That's why. Yeah. 
Um, with with Craig, they did spread out a lot, but then a couple of them were very close together, like two years apart. Then a couple of them, like four or something. Yeah, years apart. and the last one was twenty twenty one, with lots of delays from COVID. When yeah. are we looking at the next Bond? Next three to four years at least, because so, they're they're trying to find a new actor. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's another big gap. That's probably going to be one of the bigger gaps we've had in Bond for a while. Yeah, and, and I know, like I said, I'm always excited to go and see the new Bond when it's out. That doesn't take away from the fact that a couple of them have disappointed me. Like, I've gone in with big expectations. I watch it and go, oh, that was crap. Um, but, they, you know, they're the, hit and miss. You'll get a bad one, then you'll get a good one. Then you'll yeah. get another bad one and a good one. I agree. And, I and agree. This is, that's sort of something that's been more common, you know, since more the recently. late 90s yes, Bonds, since yes, the Brosnan ones. Yes. Whereas all the earlier Bonds, I, I mean, I can't think of many that I would go, oh, that was bad. You know, a couple, but yeah, I mean, even the bad ones were still good. There's there's only a handful that I, I think could have been better. I really agree with that. What's the worst one? The worst Bond? It's a tie between Moonraker and View to a Kill. I just think mm. it was overly done. It was more emphasis on certain things at the time rather than the story. Yeah, Moonraker's my worst. Yeah, um, and that was um, just because of Star Wars, I think, yeah. I don't mind li Live and Let Die. I know a lot of people don't mm. think much of that. Now, that actually wasn't a long gap between Bonds there, as in they changed from Connery to Moore. It was actually, I think, only like two years because uh, Diamonds was 71. So that's the first time that it was a change that it didn't take too long. And I believe after Roger stepped down after View to a Kill, same thing with Timothy. I think it was only two years. I think it was 87, which was Living Daylights. But there had been a big lawsuit after license, and that's why it was six years before they made another bond. And Pierce, um, Cubby Broccoli had seen Pierce Brosnan in a TV show or a movie in the early 80s. He went on to be Remington Steele. Mm. And his then wife at the time was in For Your Eyes Only. And Cubby always wanted Pierce. So when Pierce became available later... Uh, in the 90s, that's the reason partly because Cubby, I mean, Cubby at this point in time was not well and he um, was having to step down. I think he was in his mid-80s by this point and he couldn't physically be on the set. So his stepson, Michael G. Wilson, who had worked with him, really since sort of Moonraker onwards. Sorry, Spy. I t tell a lie. Spy loved me onwards. He had to step up more and he's still working on them now. And um, Cubby's daughter, Barbara Broccoli, has been there since the early 80s as an assistant in that, and then by Goldeneye and that onwards, she's been one of the main producers now too. Mm. Mm. So all in all, Jay, would you definitely say this This is definitely up there as one of your all-time favourite franchises? Oh, 100%. Bond is definitely one of my favourite franchises. I, I want to go back and watch all the 60s ones again. That's on my list to do. Unfortunately, I'm probably one of the most time-poor people on the planet at the moment so a child, I, a child <laughs> under the age of one is very time consuming folks yep so i, I will get around to it i, I really have a um a, a, i'm really missing these early bonds and have a hankering to see them so um i'm gonna do it <laughs> even if i have to watch it uh broken in little dribs and drabs but um i recommend get on it if if you haven't seen them in a long time as well um, we'd love to hear which is your favourite Bond. All um, right. Well, I've got something to ask you then. We'll mm. go into the 60s. Mm. Villains. Yep. Can you name most of them or no? Off the top of your head. I'm Dr. No. Um, Blofeld, obviously. Blofeld. Uh, Red Brandt, which was oh, yeah. um, which yeah. was for your eyes only. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Um, from, from Russia with Love. I'm sorry. What was that one? Which one? Aldrich. Aldrich. Uh, Aldrich. Um, Goldfinger. Go Goldfinger. Yeah. yeah, Largo. Largo was the, the oh, yeah, eye Largo. patch from um, Thunderball. Yeah. Um, 
Blofeld was played from You Only Live Twice three times. He's played by um, Donald Pleasance, who to this day is one of our favourite actors because of Halloween. And, yeah, of course. And, I mean, I still think he that was the basis where Dr. Evil came from, from, from Austin Powers. Then he was played by uh, Telly Savalas. Now, Telly was the big surprise for me because mm. Telly would later become famous for being in Kojak, which was a very famous series at the time in the early 70s in America, but he'd been in Kelly's Heroes. He'd been in um, Battle of the Bulge. He'd done a lot of films over in England, and Battle of the Bulge was produced by Harry Saltzman, so I think that's the reason he was able to get Telly to do On a Majesty's Secret Service. And two of my favourites were Scaramanga and Le Chief. Um, Scaramanga, definitely because of um, certain Mr. Christopher Lee, who... Yeah, he was a great actor. Yeah, he still is one of the, the ones I held in high regards too. Um, Charles Gray, who I was trying to think of, Charles played um, Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. Now, Diamonds is one of my favourites. I love the Las Vegas setting. That was different. We'd seen Bond all over Europe, but we really hadn't seen Bond in America. So they really said, this time around, we want to shoot it. And the book is set there. Now, Cubby Broccoli was very good friends with Howard Hughes in his, in his earlier days. Howard, by this point, had become the big recluse he became famous for. But they got permission from Howard to do anything they wanted on any property, any, any building, anything that Howard had control or owned. He said, Cubby Broccoli is allowed free reign. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. As long as it doesn't damage anything. And they were very careful. They were able to shut down the strip to shoot the very famous car chase sequence in Vegas, Jay. Mm. It's only because Howard Hughes said he could do it. No one else would have let him do it. So the whole uh, Vegas settings and stuff, that really adds to that movie. Um, I always remember Jill St. John. She played the love interest in that one as well. She's currently married to Robert Wagner. And... Um, Jim, one of the newer ones, Gustav's Graves. Yes, uh, it's Toby Stevens, who I've met. Toby was a lovely guy. Toby's actually the son of um, Maggie Smith, McGonagall, to all the Harry Potter fans out there. And I didn't like Hugo Drax. Um, yeah, that was a um, uh, French actor. Um, yeah, I, I Michael. Didn't, I didn't go much on him. Michael Lonsdale. Yes, uh, he was in uh, Day of the Jackal. Michael Lonsdale. I was trying to think of him, and he 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 died not too long ago too. He's eighty nine. He was too. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. I actually liked Christopher Waltz playing Ernst uh, Stavro Blofeld as yeah, well. Yeah, I did the modern take yeah, on yeah, him. Yeah, on the modern take. I, I like that. I like him. He, he had the right vibe. I did like Mads playing Le Chief. I do agree with you. That was my introduction. He was awesome. He yeah. was really good. Now I have to mention Javier Bardem playing. A certain um, blonde, because he got more thing about the hair for Skyfall than um, he actually doing the movie, and he's more of a righteous villain. Which at the time we hadn't really seen too many too many Bond villains being that way at the time. You sort of agree with him a bit on a few things, and um, I'm just trying to remember the character's name, and it definitely was. Silver, that's right, Raul Silver. I did like him. I thought he was good, and he's an ex. Um, he's an ex agent turned villain, very much similar to to, um, to Janus in uh, Goldfinger, played by Sean Bean. He he'd been a, a an ally and then became a villain, sort of thing. 
And they really did. The one thing I do like about Bond's Day, it's very much similar to several other movie series that we, we follow, yeah. is they really filled it with a lot of character actors. There were always a lot of well-known and established character actors in Bond. Yeah. So when they did Live and Let Die at the time, a lot of people held thing over them for wanting to hire an almost complete black cast, but they said the book's set that way. Mm. And that was one of the things they, put, they, they pushed for. And um, I remember that the reason they did Live and Let Die was Tom Mankiewicz, who had been the writer on Diamonds, Cubby had liked him so much, he said, here is a few of the books, which one do you want to do? While they were in post-production on Diamonds. And he said, I want to do Live and Let Die. And he said, why? And he told him why. And it's a different cast, a different situation, different everything. And that's the reason they went with that book, is just because the writer said it. Mm. Jane Seymour played Solitaire, who was a very famous love interest in that movie. We had um, Yapit Kodo, who most people would go on to remember in movies like Alien and Midnight Run, a very established actor too. And you had guys like Jeffrey Holder, you know, playing uh, Baron Samothy and all these very well-established sort of black character actors who would go on to be staples in the 70s and the early 80s. A lot of them were in my bit parts and that, but you still remembered them. Um, stunt work in that one was just as good. But as we got into the 80s, I mean, there was, uh, sorry, the 70s, it really started to change. I mean, the productions got bigger. We mentioned Moonraker being that way. But Spy really was the biggest epic one at that time period, I think. And because of the situation with building the sets in You Only Live Twice, they decided to build a set that they could fit the set into. So you had to build and actually build, and that's how they came up with the, the very famous um, submarine scenes in... Oh, yes. Yeah. So they actually built the set first and then figured out how to fit that set into it. Yes. And that was, again, Ken Adams that did it this time. They said to Ken, no, no, we can't do it that way. So that became the very famous 007 stages on Pinewood. That's where they filmed the very famous uh, Fortress of Solitude scenes in the original Superman movies. It's the same set. And I think even Ridley Scott used it a lot in a couple of his films. I know very famously Legend filmed on that set too and they had a fire and they had to rebuild it for view or kill and they did it up again. So I remember it does happen occasionally. Mm. I'm just trying to think of some um, other things to establish with this. You could, we could talk forever on Bond. I mean, I mean, we're supposed to only stick to the 60s, but as you know, we jumped up and down. Well, I think what we'll do, we're going to split up the Bond um, podcast. So this is this one's covering the 60s. And, and a um, bit of later stuff, but we yeah, yeah. distinctively didn't want to stick too much to later. No, no, but we'll do, we'll do some more episodes on some of the other um, time periods. And I think even one of the, the... We might do one on the newer Bonds, and I know it's out of our mantra of retro, but... Uh, I think it, it is important to touch on at some point. Um, what, one thing I'll quickly just finish on too, because he was the only actor to play him once. I actually did like On a Majesty's Secret Service, Joe. Yeah, it was a good one. Well, Lazenby and Aussie. Yeah. Well, that was actually directed by Peter Hunt, who I told you earlier had been the editor on the original Bonds mm. and then had been second unit on You Only Live Twice. Cubby went to him and said, how would you like to direct the next one? And he's like, serious? He goes, yep, you can direct it. Mm. Peter would only direct one, but he would go on to direct several movies with uh, Roger Moore in the 70s, including Gold and Shout the Devil, which was directed based on Wilbur Smith novels. My father is a big fan. That's why I know that. But I do think some of the stunt work and some of the, the snow scenes in 
um, on Her Majesty became a staple because suddenly skiing became a lot of in a lot of the Bond movies, especially mm. Spy and Viewed or Kill and some of those movies. That I can't remember the name of him, but it was a very famous French bobsled a skier Willie something and he did a lot of the camera scenes in those he learned how to ski a certain way so he was able to film them sort of handheld which was amazing at that time period to do that so I mean it isn't just uh, like they really looked at innovations they really looked at technology like you said how we film better mm. I mean the, they used a certain camera sequence in On a Majesty as well where they actually had a guy hanging from beneath a like a like a parachute that was held underneath a helicopter, yeah. and he's actually filming like that, and that's how they get those elegant shots of skiing over the hills and stuff on the on the peaks and stuff. That was done that way, and I can't remember the guy's name, but sadly he died in an accident the following year on another movie. Yeah, and he fell out of a plane, which is sad. Ironic. Yes, so I definitely think we've covered the basis of what we wanted to talk about with the early Bonds, and definitely some stuff afterwards too. So I agree with you. We will cover the set. We'll we'll cover Roger Moore next. I think yeah. we'll go into the Moore era. Yeah. So just to cover, Sean did six movies. He did Doctor No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice, and Diamonds Are Forever. He would later go in to star in a remake of Thunderball, which was called mm. Never Say Never Again. Yeah, that was made outside of Cubby Broccoli Harry Saltzman's company. It was made. Because there was some lawsuit thing over Thunderball. I can't remember the exact details off the top of my head. But that's also the reason there was the lawsuit later in the 80s as well. It was the same company trying to say, we own it as much as you. But it's no, that's not what's going on here. So I do think some of these movies definitely still stand out to you. And you do remember moments, even if it's stunts or villains or girls or even music. And I mean, that's the power of it. I mean, you could tell a, a, a kid born in a different era each time and they will name the Bonds of their era or even just before in that. I mean, my introduction to Bond was Octopussy, seen in the, the, the last two of, of Roger Moore's work, that and View to a Kill. I remember seeing them as a kid, Jay, in the, in the mid-80s with Mum. Yeah. I mean, that's how far back I go with that. I did not see Connery's era until Jay and I saw them in the 90s. It was just so hard to find them. I think I saw Never Say Never Again, so I always got it confused about that. But... The whole location stuff and that with those films, even now, I still love it. Well, I'm Ben. I'm Jay. Thanks for listening. And if you want us to talk about anything else or have any recommendations, please send us a line. Yeah, and we'll be happy to talk. So you can uh, find us on Facebook, uh, Retro Guardians Podcast, and uh, send us a message, post on our page, let us know what you want to hear or what you think. Does this episode uh, float your boat? Hopefully it does. Hopefully we, uh, yeah, we'll be back and we'll be talking about some more Bonds and other stuff in the future. We'd love to have you on for the journey. And we love everything retro. <laughs> Indeed. See ya. Good one. Bye. Bye. Retro Guardians.